Well, good morning again. Thank you for coming. Uh, we're in a study of the book of James, uh, James chapter 1, verses 14 through 16 today. Um, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to get a free one from us. Go by the information booth. We'll give you in the one translation that I have here called the ESV. That means the extra spiritual version. No, just kidding. It means the English standard version. I think it's the most faithful to the original languages. And if you can tell, I have a new Bible. Yeah, it's big and black that I can really beat you up with, you know. Uh, no, the other one tore apart this summer. Overuse, obviously, huh? So I hope all of your Bibles fall apart from overuse because we believe here unabashedly that this is God's Word, that truth is found in His Word, and it is the truth that guides the world if we're willing to search it and live by it. So let me give you a little bit of the context of James 1, uh, 16 through 18 today, the verses that we're studying. Uh, first of all, uh, James is the author, obviously. Uh, he is the half-brother of Jesus. Interestingly, he was the one who would lead the family in coming to Jesus and say, please come home, you're stirring up a group of people who want you dead. He was one of Jesus' great skeptics, yet he becomes the head of the entire Jerusalem church. Why? Paul gives us an insight in 1 Corinthians. 15, James was one of the few to whom Jesus appeared in his resurrection form initially. It must have been a large part of what brought him to deep, transforming, life-changing faith in his half-brother, now his Lord and Savior, Jesus. James is writing this book to persecuted Christians around the world, much like what I just prayed with Pastor Saib and what's happening in Egypt. James wrote this book to Christians who were suffering and being persecuted. And you can see that he's trying to encourage them amidst their trials. For example, we saw in James 1 verses 2 through 4, those powerful verses where James says, count it all joy when trials come your way. And then you can almost imagine the readers reading it and going, well, okay, we get that, but you know, is God the one who tempts us? Is God the one tempting all of this to happen for us to sin against him? And of course, we saw last week how James answers that and says, no, God does not tempt anyone to evil. Well, then they're sitting there going, well, okay, there is something tempting us to evil, and there's testing that is causing us to go through fiery trials. Then I think the natural question they were asking, well, is God the author of evil? Is God not good? And James responds in today's verses, which is the essence of what I'm about to teach you. No, he answers. God is good, and his mercies endure forever. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. And that's his message. And moreover, he will say, as you'll see in just a moment, that God is not the author of evil, that every good gift comes from our Father and not, from, not evil when it's given to us. So we're going to look at from where does evil come as a part of today's text. Out of reverence for the reading of the Scripture, if you're able, would you please stand? James chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, this is the word of the Lord. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, if you're going to develop your faith, 
you must rightly understand the character of God. Faith is defeated when you wrongly believe in the character of God. Faith and the character of God must be cooperative together. And it is a battle to continue to believe in this world when we face so many trials and difficulties. But to believe continually, in essence, is connected to a right understanding of the character of God. Let me state from the very beginning that God is not the author of evil. There is an evil one who is the one tempting us to evil. He is the author of evil, the Bible clearly says. And when we say that we believe God is the author of evil, we are impugning God's character. Now, I had a person work for me on staff some years ago, and when this person left staff, after a while it got back to me that he was speaking to other people about my character. And when I heard what he was saying, I got ticked off. I went, that's not who I am. That's not my character. That's not representative of my true nature. Well, if I become angry when someone wrongly impugns my character, how much more does God the Father become angry when we wrongly impugn his character, mostly when we say God is the author of evil? No, God is good, and his mercies endure forever. God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. So let's look at what these verses have to say to us about the goodness of God. There are many insights that we will see. For example, God's goodness is shown in verse 16. Let me unpack each one of these phrases in the verse. First of all, in verse 16, James writes, do not be deceived. Now, if he's telling, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, people of faith, then obviously there's the chance we could be deceived. And if we are deceived, who is the one behind the scenes trying to deceive us? My answer, the devil. That's what his name means. Literally, the term the devil means the deceiver. He's operating behind the scenes trying to deceive us. It's all throughout Scripture. Remember, I've tried to teach you how to look at life through a biblical worldview. It's essential that you understand the biblical worldview in order to understand what's happening around us. It explains everything. Here's the biblical worldview. Creation begins with Genesis 1 and 2. And after each one of the days of creation, God looks at what he did and he says, it is what? It's good. God's original intent in creation was that everything was good because God is good and his mercies endure forever. Then in Genesis 3, there is something called the fall. It is the introduction of sin into this world. Every piece and particle of sin that has existed since creation is because of the fall. Well, who is the author of the fall? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, there appears upon the scene a malevolent evil force, and he tempts Eve. And how does he tempt her? He says to her, did God really say to you, you can't eat of any of the trees in the garden? And of course, that was a lie. He said, you can eat of all of them except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the implication was from the evil one that God's a celestial killjoy that he's trying to keep us from enjoying something, 
Therefore, we should be gods and we should take control of our lives. What was he saying to Eve? He was giving her a lie. He was deceiving her. If you don't like the whole idea of an evil one, a personal malevolent devil, then you've got problems with Jesus. In John the 10th chapter, Jesus sends out his disciples to preach and to heal. They come back after some days excited about the power of the gospel given to them to overcome darkness, sin, and death. They are saying, Jesus, you can't believe what happened with what we did out there. And it's almost a whimsical moment when Jesus in Luke 10, verse 19 and thereafter, he says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like an angel of light. Isn't that intriguing? It's almost like as he hears his disciples say, we saw your power operating in the world through us, he goes back to that moment in time when Lucifer, the angel of light, led a rebellion in heaven and took with him one-third of the angels and began an onslaught upon the goodness of God to destroy everything that God had created. And he was cast out of heaven to other spheres of the heavenlies and to earth where he is trying to destroy us. In that moment, Jesus says, I, I remember, I remember that day when this mighty angel Lucifer rebelled against my father and I saw him be cast out of heaven as an angel of light. And you see, if you like Jesus' teachings about forgive your enemies, love your neighbor, give your life away, all those things, and then yet you're willing to say, but I don't believe in a personal malevolent devil, you don't have that option. Why? Jesus did. Let me ask you a question. If that's your position today as a naturalist in our contemporary society, who are you? Who are you to argue with Jesus and say, I like this part of your teachings, but I don't like that part of your teachings? We don't have that right. Jesus is the one who taught about a personal devil who deceives. He did with Eve. She rebelled and sin, destruction, evil was introduced into this world. The author of evil is the devil himself. And moreover, in Matthew 4, Jesus heard a voice from heaven at his baptism that said, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Then it says the spirit of God drove Jesus into the wilderness where he was to be tested by the devil. And it's interesting, when they encounter each other during this 40 days of fasting, the devil comes to Jesus and first of all, they must have recognized one another. They were in the eternities of heaven together. And the devil comes to Jesus, and what's his first phrase? If you are the Son of God. Isn't that remarkable? The Father had just whispered to Jesus at his baptism, you are my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And the devil's first message to Jesus in temptation was, if you are the Son of God. What's he doing? He's trying to deceive him. He's trying to lie to him. And in fact, Jesus in John 8, in talking with the Jews who wanted to kill him, says, your father is the father of, who remembers it? Of lies. John 8, your father is the father of lies. Implying that there are two fatherhoods in the world and we are under the tutelage of one or the other. We are either under the tutelage of God the father who is benevolent and good or we're under the tutelage of the evil one who is the father of lies. James begins this verse by saying, do not be deceived. Do not fall prey to the evil one's lies that God is the author of evil. It's just 
not true. I have gone on Twitter rather recently. I must be crazy. But, but I've tried to use it as a way of giving you spiritual truth, insights God's given me. I don't use it, you know, hey, this afternoon at 3 o'clock I'm going to the bathroom or something like that, you know, just some crazy stuff. Yeah, I've tried to use it in a productive, positive way. And I love to give insights into the character of God. And whenever I do one on the character of God and then maybe hashtag it, God is good, invariably within hours I will get an angry response from an angry atheist somewhere in the world who will say, if your God is good, explain this, exclamation mark, and then give me a picture of a starving child. Or the angry atheist will say, if your God is so good, explain this, and the, uh, it will be shown a picture of a deformed baby. How do you explain this, they ask, if your God is good? And I've gotten to the point where I don't respond anymore because it's useless and senseless to try to explain deep theology with 154 characters. But what I usually do is respond, Genesis 3. And, and I'm saying that the evil one's the author of evil, not God. It's because of the fall that there are deformed babies and starving children and all the other evils in the world. Then they usually write back after Genesis 3, well, if your God is good and all-powerful, why doesn't he do something about Genesis 3? And my answer always is, he will. Because here's the biblical worldview, folks. Genesis 1 and 2, creation, perfect, good. Genesis 3, the fall, evil comes into the world. God decides to do something about it. Genesis 12, he calls a nation of Israel, and that's the rest of the Old Testament in its development, through which he brings his son into the world who dies for the forgiveness of our sins. And then one day, one day, the book of Revelation, he's coming back. He's returning. And when he does, he's going to eradicate all evil in this world. I'm convinced that one of the reasons the radical atheists don't want to believe in God is because they know that moment's going to happen when they will be held accountable for how they believe. And if they can believe there is no God, they can live life the way they want to live it. The reason God doesn't immediately deal with evil, folks, is this reason, because evil is in every one of us, isn't it? Evil's in every particle of creation, every part of this world, even in the earth itself. And if God dealt with evil right now, how much of the world would be left? It would be truly a scorched earth policy. And that's what 2 Peter means when Jesus returns. The earth's going to be restored by fire, not by flood, but by fire. And all evil is going to be burned up in the second coming of Jesus. God is not the author of evil. God is good, and his mercies endure forever. God is good all the time. All the time what? God is good. Would you give God the glory for that? Would you praise him? A deep, meaningful faith is dependent upon the character of God knowing that he is good. It's a message for my beloved brothers. For all of us who believe in Christ, we should not be deceived. God is good. Okay, let's look at the next one. God's goodness is stated in verse 17. Let me go through this verse very carefully with you. 
Every good gift and perfect gift is from above. Let's stop there. I looked up the word every in the dictionary this week. Guess what it means? Every. All the good and perfect gifts that come to us come from above, come from the Father in heaven. What does that imply? Every imperfect and every bad gift does not come from him because God is good and his mercies endure forever. Coming down from the Father of lights. Okay, so these good and perfect gifts come to us from the Father. Now, let me stop a second. Whenever I teach on God as being a loving, good father, there's always a problem for some of you. Some of you had bad dads, and my heart breaks over it. You had abusive dads, drunken dads, dysfunctional dads, absent dads, angry dads. And some of you through the years have said to me, David, you keep calling God daddy, and and I didn't have a good dad like you. And that's a real barrier for me to believe in a good God as a daddy because my earthly dad was so bad. And I get it. But don't you understand your bad dad was because of Genesis 3. It was never God's Genesis 1 and 2 original intent. He wanted every single one of us to have a good, kind, loving daddy who put their arms around us, who had the best intentions for us, who walked with us through tragedies and helped develop our talents and dreams to the full. That was God's original intent. But because of the fall, many dads aren't. But that doesn't negate the fact that when Jesus came, he wanted for those of you who had bad dads to bypass the problems of your earthly dads and to see that God is good and he's a good daddy in heaven who loves you and wants to give you good gifts from above. That's what Jesus tried to teach in Matthew 7 when he said, hey, if you dads who are evil, you dads who are basically selfish, and all of us are, even the best dads do things selfishly, If you're basically evil and you want to give good gifts to your children, these three powerful words from Jesus, how much more does the heavenly father, the heavenly daddy want to give good and perfect gifts to his children? God is good and his mercies endure forever. God is good all the time and all the time. What, folks? God is good. That's what James is trying to teach us. Moreover, Coming down from the Father of lights, God is the author of light, of the sun, the moon, and the stars. 1 John 1, 5 says that in him, in God, there is no darkness. In him, there's no evil. God is the author of light. He's the one who brings us out of darkness into his light. And folks, without light, we cannot move one step in creation. He's the Father of lights. Then with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What is that saying? It's saying that this God who is good, who is the author of light, he doesn't change. On the beach this summer, now I bet many of you can identify with this. As you're standing in the sun, at one point during the day, your shadow is over here. And the next point during the day, your shadow is over here. And as the day advances, your shadow is here. And then as the day advances, it's over here. The point being that in light, shadows shift and change. Shadows have variations. Change. Have you noticed that nothing stays the same? Have you noticed that change occurs to all of us? 
Have you noticed that our skin gets a little wrinklier even though we try to make it darker with the sun? Have you noticed that our joints begin to creak a little bit more and more and ache a bit more and more the older we get? Have you noticed that kids grow up? Marilyn and I have been married 35 years. 27 of those years have been spent raising children. We had to wait the first eight years for a child in a story I've shared before of God being gracious to us in infertility, finally giving us Bethany, our daughter, who now has two grandchildren who are so cool. <laughs> and then we had David some four years later, and we had a boy and a girl, and we both thought, thank you, Lord, you're so good to us. Then more years passed, and one evening, Marilyn came down to me, and she said, I need to tell you something. I said, what's that? She said, I'm pregnant. I said, how do you know? She said, I just took a pregnancy test. I said, what's the percentage of accuracy on the pregnancy test? She said, 98%. I said, take another one. She said, I can't take another one for an hour. I said, take another one in an hour. So an hour later, she came down with a big smile on her face and said, I'm pregnant. I said, what's the accuracy rate of the second pregnancy test? She said, 99.5%. I said, I think we're going to have a child. So I got up and I said, honey, I love you. I don't know when I'll be back. I promise I'll be back. I really do. It's around 10 o'clock at night. I go out and get in my car, and I just start driving down Park Road. There used to be a movie theater down there, and I stopped and went up to the window, and there was one movie at 1010, A Clear and Present Danger by Harrison Ford. <laughs> I don't remember a whole lot in that movie. I sat there for two hours. I was the only one in the movie theater. I've watched it since then. It's actually a pretty good movie if you like those kind of action thrillers. But I just sat there, and here's what I did for the two hours. Okay, when he's this age, I'm going to be this age. And when he graduates from high school, I'm going to be this age. And he's going to need to go to college. And I'm going to need to work at least until this age. But then I heard the Lord whisper, if I created him, I'll take care of him. And you. Got it. So after the movie was over, drove home. After midnight, Marilyn said, are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm okay. I said, let's celebrate God's goodness to us. And Michael was born, our last child. Well, this past week, um, Michael readied himself, packed himself to leave Charlotte and go to the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri, where he enrolled as a freshman. Oh, do we have some Tigers out there? Okay. I'll say go Tigers and have nothing to do with Clemson because it's the Mizzou Tigers now, okay? Michael's a swimmer. He got a swimming scholarship to Mizzou, so praise God. Thank you so much. He's pretty doggone good, and uh, he's now enrolled there. But we had to take him there, so we left on uh, Tuesday of this past week. We packed up the car. He's in the back seat. Marilyn's in the front seat. I'm backing up the car, and I put my arm around her, looking over my shoulder to make sure I didn't hit anything going backwards. And as I went backwards, I just happened to glance up into his eyes that were filled with tears. And one streaming down his right cheek. I said, I sure love you, son. And we started off toward the airport. May I give you a tip that when you're taking your last child to college, do not put the car in reverse, okay? Just don't do it. <laughs> and it just hit me as I looked into his face with those tears. 
That's the same face of that little baby who 18 years earlier was placed in my arms. How quickly life, what folks? Changes. Changes. This life changes. And now Marilyn and I are empty nesters. And frankly, for two days, we're kind of enjoying it. You know, we can do what we want to do, but we are empty nesters. It's a new change in our lives. Changes, doesn't it? May I give you this insight? God never changes. God never changes. There's no variation or turning of shadow with God. God is good all the time, all the time. Would you give God the glory for that? He never changes. And you must see that as a part of his character, folks, that the eternal father of the universe never, ever changes. Life changes, but he doesn't. Finally, the goodness of God is seen in verse 18. Let me unpack these verses for you. How is his goodness seen? First of all, of his own will, he brought us forth. By his own will, he brought us forth. What's that saying? It's saying we were brought forth out of darkness into light. Using other biblical language, we were born again. Jesus' words to Nicodemus, John 3, 3. We were born of the Spirit We were brought out of darkness into his marvelous light by his will. We had nothing to do with it. Salvation is all the work of the good God of heaven. And that should stop any temptation toward pride or self-aggrandizement that might happen in our souls Humility is where God wants us to rest, not in pride. Steve Jobs' biography was a book I read this summer. Fascinating man, very smart, did not love Jesus. He was filled with Eastern mysticism. He had no desire to love Jesus. But interestingly, he had a heart that didn't want to be filled with pride. And here's the way he dealt with his pride. He loved the story of the Roman generals who would defeat an army then come back into the capital city of Rome and all the people on both sides of the street throwing flowers on him, screaming with great celebratory praise upon him, the generals would always bring a hired slave to stand with them in the chariot as they went through the center city. And that hired slave's purpose was to whisper in the ear of the general amidst all the accolades and acclaim these words. One day... You're going to die. That defeats pride, doesn't it? As does the realization that we are dead in our sins and trespasses, Ephesians 2.1. Folks, learn biblical theology. We're dead in our sins and trespasses. Have you ever seen a dead person choose God? Dead people can't choose God. Our salvation is by grace through faith. Jesus substituting himself on the cross for our benefit. And therefore, if we're dead in our sins and trespasses, and it's God who brings us forth because of his will, he gets all the glory. Even salvation is all about God the Father and not us. Well, how are we brought forth? 
from that place of deadness. James 18 tells us, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. What's the word of truth? The word of truth is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are made alive, born again of the Spirit, out of darkness, being brought into light by the word of truth, by the gospel, which is true. There aren't thousands of world's religions. There are two. You either have a relationship with God by your works or by his grace, the gospel of truth. In case you don't know it, let me tell you one more time. The bad news is all of us were conceived in Genesis 3 sin. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, they passed on to every single one of us. At the moment of conception, their progeny in selfishness being conceived. Every single one of us. We're birthed with a desire to rebel against God and have the world revolve around us. We are rebels, according to the Bible. We are sinners. We miss the mark of God's original intent in Genesis 1 and 2. And if we keep on our trajectory when we die, we will be separated from God forever. But because God so loved the world, he became one of us. He put on human flesh in Jesus. He lived the perfect life we cannot live. He lived according to the law, righteously in every possible way. Then he went to the cross and died, and he took the death we deserved upon himself, and then by grace through faith gives us eternal life that we don't deserve. He took upon himself the condemnation from the Father that we deserve and gave us the acceptance of the Father we don't deserve. Why? Simply because the Father is good and because he's gracious. That gospel is what births new life within us. Over the summer, I was thinking a lot about how sometimes I ask you to bow your head and, and pray a prayer, the sinner's prayer, asking Jesus to come into your heart. And I looked at the scripture over and over again, and I didn't see that anywhere. The way people are born again and their lives transformed is by the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I just did it for you. Is your heart reborn? Is your heart made new? Is there something stirring deep within you that you know you want to be a new creation in Christ? The gospel of grace does that. And it's because of a good father who wants you saved so you will spend eternity with him. And he would go to the greatest extent, even death on a cross, to bring you into that relationship. That is the word of truth. And finally, it says that we should be the first fruits of his creatures. That's fascinating. That God wants Christians to be the first fruits of his creatures. What does that mean? The first fruits for a Jew was their harvest, an agrarian society. Off the top, they gave 10%. And it was always the first fruits, their best and choicest fruit. And it was their way to saying to God, you're first in our lives and we're giving you the best to prove that you're first. That, that's why I teach you the tithe. You don't have to believe it. But the tithe represents to the Father in heaven that you believe he's first and he's best in your life. So James here is saying that we who have been born of the Spirit, we should be new kinds of creatures on this planet. We should be the best and the choicest persons on this planet. More specifically, what that means is those of us who've been born of the Spirit should have the best marriages. Divorce never come. We'll reconcile. We'll work it through because we're the choicest and first and best of God. We're the holiest in our lifestyles. 
We have the best work ethic because our boss isn't our boss on earth. Our boss is God himself, and we're working to please him and him alone. We have the best speech. It's not dirty or coarse, but only the highest and purest phrases come from our lips. We have the most gracious and giving natures, and we're the greatest seekers of truth in his word because we've been born of the Spirit by the word of truth. Moreover, those first fruits that were given became the seedbed for the next harvest. We should be the seedbed of those people who don't know Christ. The seed of the Spirit in us should then be put in the hearts of other people. Did you know in the church right now, there are the top 25 fastest growing churches in America? I thought to myself when I read that recently, where else but America? In most of the world, Christians are being persecuted, and we have a list of the top 25 fastest growing churches in America. Jesus must be smacking his head in heaven. Because here's the truth. The success of a church should not be measured by how many fannies are in the seats, but how many lives are in the streets. A third of you are applauding. Think about it. We're the salt of the world. We're the light of the world. We're to be in the world. And that's something that can't be measured. The 25 churches that have the most people in the world. You can't measure that. And that's the way Jesus wants it. He wants us not to measure success by fannies in the seats, but by lives in the streets. We are the first fruits, a special creature, planting those seeds to those who don't know him. Has your life reproduced itself in anybody as a follower of Christ? Okay, let's bring this plane in. Let's land it. Let me teach you how to give some faith applications. What you need to do is seek the Scripture and find truth, and no matter what your circumstances may say, declare faith perspectives. Make faith declarations. So let me teach you how to do that now with the faith declaration that God is good and His mercies endure forever. God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. Would you please stand? Are you ready? What I want you to do is antiphonally. Are you impressed that I even can say that word? Antiphonally. It means I say something, you respond to me. So I'm going to say a prayer that I bet is somewhere close to some of your hearts, and then I want you to respond, Lord, you are good, and your mercies endure forever. Would you say it with me? But say it loudly. Lord, you are good, and your mercies endure One more time, a little louder. Lord, you are good, and your mercies endure Okay. Father in heaven, I've had disappointments and frustrations in my life. It's been a struggle. But I believe today with this faith declaration, Lord, you are and your. Oh, Lord Jesus, I've had broken relationships. I've had a spouse who walked out on me. I've had other people who've hurt me. But, Lord, I believe you are and your. Lord, I have physical bodily pain. It aches sometimes. And sometimes I become really frustrated, but I believe you are and your. I have unfulfilled dreams and expectations, but I believe you are and your. I've had a job loss. I've had loved ones who have gone on to be with you, and I'm lonely and I'm desperate, but I believe you are 
and your I have fear in my heart. I've been criticized for my faith. I have been persecuted in some ways, but I believe you are and your Got it? It means God is working all things together for good for those who love him. That even though evil exists, Genesis 3, God is weaving even evil toward his purposes and working everything together for good because God is good. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Anybody want to join me? God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Come on, one more time. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Oh, we can do that louder yet. God is good. And all the time, God is good. One more time. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Would you give him the glory for that?